As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Welcome to the 24th installment of PCPC. On today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at TAM Airlines Flight 3054, a scheduled flight from Porto Alegre to Sao Paulo, Brazil, on the evening of July 17th, 2007. A little later on in the show, we're going to be chatting with a Brazilian pilot, journalist, an eyewitness to the incident that was kind enough to join us, Juliana Garbo, so we can all look forward to that. Thanks to the Patreon crew for keeping us afloat during these difficult times. If you enjoy PCPC and want to become a sponsor, head on over to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, where you can sign up for as little as one American dollar a month. You know, I can make coffee at home all day long for like 25 cents a cup, but I like the fact that there's coffee shops in the world, so occasionally I mosey on down to the local coffee shop, get a nice Americano for $4. It's my way of voting for that coffee shop to stay in the world, help them pay some bills. If you like PCPC, you can vote with your dollar as well. Go to patreon.com forward slash pod. Thanks again to all the Patreon peeps for your support. We're going to be starting a new round of nominations for future episodes on Patreon this week, and you should all be getting your merch very soon. Joining us today on PCPC is a five-time gold-winning Olympic athlete and a holder of a PhD in the field of quick-witted commentary, Miss Tess Andrade. How's it going, Tess? Oh, it's going great. Thank you for that introduction, Michael. I'm a little worried you might be spreading misinformation, but um, I'll, I'll gladly take that title if you want to give it to me. i got to come up with something different every episode just to make you laugh. Yeah, it's working. What, would you, uh, <laughs> what have you been up to? Well, Michael, obviously there have been protests all around the country this past week after the death of George Floyd. And 
it's a really important moment in history, I think. I'm excited to be a part of this moment. I think that this country was built on the economy of slavery and that racism and oppression has carried over into a lot of our institutions and the way that we police and imprison black people. And this is a really important moment that we're all a part of, and we're going to be able to talk about it years from now as, as hopefully being a moment of, of great change in our country. So that's kind of what's been going on for me. Yeah, I think that's what's been going on for all of us. I feel like we're living through the civil rights movement 2.0. I feel like in the 60s, we made some good changes, but we obviously didn't get up to full equality. And hopefully this pushes us along. And I know 2020 has been a rough year for a lot of people out there that we've had to be living through this pandemic. And now we have social unrest and uneasiness out there. But I think it's necessary, and I hope that we're going through these growing pains now so future generations don't have to go through them. So hopefully uh, tomorrow is a better day, and I, um, I'm also inspired by a lot of the energy out there that people seem to genuinely care about standing up for equality and injustice. Well, Tess, the airline industry in the U.S. has reported a bit of a bounce back from the plunge in demand they've been experiencing since the start of the coronavirus lockdown. TSA announced that they screened 949,000 passengers over last weekend, double the number of passengers compared to a month ago. American Airlines has announced that it'll be flying 55% of its normal flights in July, up from just 20% in April. American Airlines stock rose 72% in one week. Delta's adding 200 flights for June, 300 flights for July. JetBlue's stock is up 21% in the past month. Southwest is adding more flights to Denver, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. International flights seem to still be in low demand, but things seem to be picking up domestically. So after a pretty rough ride for the past few months, it seems like domestic airlines in the U.S. have finally found a bit of smooth air to cruise along during the summer months. How do you feel about this increase in travel? Uh, what do you think? Is it safe right now to be out in the skies? I think that people need to do what they need to do. And um, it may not be completely safe, but I'm sure they're taking precautions that they wouldn't normally take. Yeah, I feel like there's a, you know, kind of a stir crazy vibe in the air that people have probably been cooped up at home for three months. And maybe they just need to get out and do something. And if that means wearing a mask, wearing a full hazmat suit and getting on a plane and just going somewhere and going for a hike, it's just breaking out of that. You know, it's summertime, people expect a vacation and they're reacting accordingly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that at a certain point, you do kind of have to resume your life. At, at some point, there has to be some return to what feels normal. And for many people, I think that means visiting their families or going on trips. And as long as you're doing it safely, I say, you know, go forth and prosper. Yeah, maybe people are just kind of desensitized to coronavirus by now, too, where in the beginning, it was really scary. And now after three months and feeling like they're okay, they're just willing to gamble going out in the world. And yeah. Hopefully uh, numbers keep on going down. Hopefully people take safe precautions and stay healthy. I have to say, Michael, I really agree with that statement. I think I was pretty fearful of all of this when it first started. And as time has gone on and no one in my immediate circle has really been affected by it directly, I've definitely loosened up a bit. That's good. Well, I hope everybody traveling out there stays safe. And uh, I hope that... Uh, Things keep on going well for the airlines. Today's podcast is brought to you once again by BetterHelp. 
Go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod to sign up and get 10% off your first month. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. Great for this period of time. We're all spending a lot of time at home and alone. If you need someone to talk to and make sure you're doing your best practicing healthy mental habits, BetterHelp can help you. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks to BetterHelp. I like to mention at the top of each episode that I'm new to the world of aviation. I'm no expert by any means. I noticed a few years ago that I was getting abnormally nervous about flying, and this podcast serves as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts. My hope is that the more that we learn about crashes of the past, the more we'll realize how many changes were instituted along with each crash to make flying safer for all of us today. We realize that each accident we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. Somebody's brother or sister, mother or father died, and we don't want to be inconsiderate or disrespectful of that fact. We just find plane accidents to be historical events worth discussing. It's interesting to realize how all these crashes of the past helped build air travel into the extremely safe system that exists today. You ready to get started, Tess? I'm ready, Michael. TAM Airlines Flight 3054 was a scheduled flight from the city of Porto Alegre in southern Brazil to Congonhas Airport in Sao Paulo on the evening of Tuesday, July 17, 2007. The plane was an Airbus A32233. The A320 was developed by Airbus in the late 1970s, early 80s, as a narrow-body jet airliner that would compete for market share with the Boeing 737 and the McDonnell Douglas DC-9. As some of you may recall from our recent Aeroflot Flight 593 episode, where that plane was the A310, Airbus first established itself with the wide-body A300, which was delivered to the commercial market in 1974. Airbus gets feedback that airlines want a smaller version of this A300, so they develop another wide-body jet, the A310, which comes out in April 1983. While developing the A310, airlines are still communicating their need for an even smaller plane, so Airbus decides that their next move is going to be developing a narrow-body jet. Instead of the eight abreast seating and two aisles that the world would come to know with the A300 and A310, the A320 would only have one aisle with three seats on each side. There's two engines, one below each wing, and at the edge of each wing on the A320-200 series are wingtip fences, which are winglets that extend above and below the edge of the wing to increase lift and thus improve fuel efficiency. The A320 would be the world's first airliner to utilize an all-digital fly-by-wire system, meaning pilots make inputs via side stick, and these inputs are converted into electrical signals that are carried through wires. The flight control computer changes the positioning of control surfaces according to the inputs from the pilot. So fly-by-wire means the computer on board is like a middleman between the pilot and the flight control surfaces. A pilot moves a side stick or control column, those inputs are carried through wires, that's where fly-by-wire comes from, and the flight control computer tries to move the control surfaces to give the pilot his desired result. Passenger capacity on the A320 is 140 to 180, depending on the configuration. The first order for the A320 was an order for 25 planes by Air France in 1981 at the Paris Air Show. Seven years later, Air France received their first delivery of the A320 on March 28, 1988. Over the next 30-plus years, Airbus would go on to develop a few larger and smaller variants of the A320, 
They also made several upgrades to the original design, offering newer, more fuel-efficient engines, new winglets called sharklets, and a new cabin design where weight was reduced. All these modifications on the newest model of the A320, known as the A320neo for new engine option, helped improve fuel efficiency by 15%. In October 2019, the Airbus A320 family became the highest-selling jet airliner in the world, passing the Boeing 737. 15,572 orders have been made for A320 family aircraft over the roughly 40 years that it's been in existence. So pulling back from our short history lesson on the A320, the A320-200 series plane that was used for our flight we'll be discussing today, Flight 3054, was manufactured by Airbus in early 1998 and delivered to Taka Airlines in March of 98. The plane was leased to Pacific Airlines and then to Pegasus Aviation before being leased by TAM Airlines in December 2006, seven months prior to the incident. The plane had just over 21,000 flight hours and 9,300 flight cycles. The captain of Flight 3054 was Captain Henrique Stefanini Di Sacco. Captain Stefanini was 53 years old at the time of the incident. The native de Sao Paulo received his pilot's license in December 1975. He had 13,654 flight hours with 2,236 hours flying the A320. The first officer of Flight 3054 was First Officer Kleiber Aguiar Lima. First Officer Lima was 54 years old. He received his private pilot's license in December 1974. First Officer Lima had 14,760 flight hours, only 237 hours on the A320. Overall, both pilots combined had 28,000 flight hours, so this is a very experienced flight crew. There were four flight attendants and 181 passengers, so adding the two pilots, 187 human beings were on board Flight 3054. Of the 181 passengers, two were infants and five were off-duty airline employees. On July 13, 2007, four days prior to Flight 3054, the number two engine on the plane, the right engine, had its reverser deactivated by maintenance because there was a leak in the inner actuator. So usually when these huge commercial jets land, they're very heavy and going upwards of 150 miles an hour. Pilots use reverse thrust on landing where the left and right engine open up reverser doors or flaps located on the sides of the engine housing. Many of you have probably seen this before during landing, where the engine suddenly turns into a transformer and changes shape because of these doors opening up. When these reverser doors spring open, air is then forced forwards instead of backwards, helping to slow down the plane on the runway and take some of the burden for slowing the plane down off of the brakes. One thing I recently learned that you all may already know, but I thought was interesting, is that the engines actually spool up a little bit when full reverse thrust is engaged. So a plane might land with the engines at idle power, and then when and if full reverse thrust is engaged during the rollout, the engines are actually having power increased to them, but it's forcing the air forwards to slow the forward motion of the plane. In any event, the reverse thrust to the right engine for flight 3054 is not operational hasn't operated for the past four days. Flying the plane with only one engine with reverse thrust working correctly isn't seen as crazy dangerous or operating outside of the plane's limits for safe operation. 
In fact, earlier in the day of July 17th, 2007, the day the incident we'll be discussing, this very plane had already landed at Congonias Airport in Sao Paulo twice. It landed safely at Congonias in the rain at 11.11 a.m. in the morning, and it landed at 2.32 p.m. in the afternoon when there was no precipitation. So flight 3054 is scheduled to be the third time that this plane's going to land at Congonias Airport on the same day, July 17th. With all this said, Congonias Airport does not exactly inspire peace in the minds of pilots that have to fly and land there. The airport's situated in the heart of Sao Paulo and is surrounded by tall office and apartment buildings. At the time, Congonias was the busiest airport in Brazil because of its location in the center of the city. The main runway, runway 35 left, is only 6,360 feet long. There's no overrun area or e-mass at the end of the runway, but instead a sharp drop-off to a busy avenue with several lanes of traffic below. Many pilots have described landing at Congonias like landing on an aircraft carrier out at sea. There's just very little room for air. Additionally, July is the middle of the winter season for Brazil, and with winter comes heavy rain. The airport was notorious for having standing water on the runway, which would often lead to hydroplaning and make safely slowing down a plane even more difficult than it typically was, because planes required a greater distance to come to a stop with a slick runway, extra distance that Congonia simply didn't have to offer. On March 26, 2006, a year before Flight 3054, a BRA Linas Arias plane with 133 human beings on board hydroplaned upon landing at Congonias and stopped just feet away from the steep drop-off at the end of the runway. The pilots of that flight implemented a zigzag procedure, weaving back and forth on the runway to try and get some more room, more time for the plane to come to a stop. Eventually, the plane skidded through a grassy patch on the ground before coming to a rest right at the edge of the drop-off. All passengers on that flight had to exit via the emergency slide, but thankfully there were no injuries. Congonias Airport was so busy, with so many planes landing there, that the runway accumulated large rubber deposits from the tires of aircraft. This made the short runway even more tricky for landing planes looking to slow down because the rubber on the surface of the runway resulted in less friction, which made it harder for planes to get a grip and stop. In October and November of 2006, in an effort to increase friction on the runway, maintenance at the airport blasted the runway with steel granulation at high pressure, which resulted in a better grip for landing planes. Unfortunately, it didn't really address the issue of standing water that would result after rainfall. In 2007, from May 15th, to June 28th, starting around 6 a.m. to midnight, the airport underwent a full resurfacing of the main runway. The runway was reopened to operations on June 29th, however the job was not yet complete. The plan was to carve out little grooves in the runway, like tiny little drainage canals, that would redirect rainwater off the surface of the runway during rainfall. So these grooves were to address the previous standing water issue the runway had had in the past, Unfortunately, the pavement needed to set for a while before these grooves could be carved out. So when the runways reopened on June 29th, it's a grooveless runway, recently resurfaced but no drainage system yet. There's no rain for the first 16 days that the new runway is open. 
So there's no reports of anyone complaining about a slippery runway or standing water. On July 15th, two days before Flight 3054, there's light rainfall for the first time since the runway had opened, and one plane out of 287 landings that day reported a slippery runway. The following day, July 16th, one day before Flight 3054, it rained harder, and 11 reports were made from flight crews that had landed complaining of slippery conditions and hydroplaning. One flight, Pantanal Flight 4763, with 25 people on board, veered to the left of the runway after hydroplaning. It impacted a concrete block that was in the ground, causing the nose gear to collapse and damaging the left main landing gear. Then the plane ran into some lighting, which damaged the right side landing gear and tires before coming to rest on a patch of grass. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but the plane was damaged beyond repair and written off. So this is the situation that Flight 3054 is going to be flying into. As I said earlier, these pilots already had landed at Kingonius earlier in the day. Yes, they are very experienced pilots, but it's July 17th, 2007. It's raining in southern Brazil. These guys are aware that Congonias has a short runway, just had an accident the previous day with hydroplaning as a contributing factor, and it's on their minds that landing at Congonias isn't exactly going to be a cakewalk. After loading up all 181 passengers and performing their pre-flight checks and a few minutes of taxiing, TAM Airlines Flight 3054 takes off from Porto Alegre at 5.19 p.m. en route to Congonias Airport in Sao Paulo. Flight's scheduled to be a 90-minute journey to the northeast, up the eastern coast of Brazil. The takeoff and climb out of Porto Alegre is routine, but along the journey to Sao Paulo, the weather's unfavorable. A few deviations from the initial planned flight route were required to navigate the weather, and the flight crew gets a message from air traffic control in Sao Paulo that rains are picking up at Congonhas, and they've temporarily closed the main runway after getting a complaint that the runway's slippery. So Flight 3054 might have to divert to another airport. You'd have to imagine that this isn't welcome news to the flight crew. Already in the middle of the flight, this flight crew's having to deal with poor weather, having to make changes to their flight plan to avoid the bad conditions, and the airport they're flying to gives them a heads up that they might have to find another place to land because they stopped landings temporarily. Not exactly what every pilot wants to hear. Also along the way, Captain Stefanini mentions that he has a headache. Captain Stefanini is the pilot in command, while First Officer Lima is handling the radios. So the pilot flying the plane isn't feeling in tip-top condition at the moment. About one hour into the flight, shortly before 6.15pm, as the plane cruises along at 31,000 feet, The flight crew of Flight 3054 get another communication from air traffic control in Sao Paulo that the weather's somewhat clearing up, rain's still falling, but not as heavily as before. Runway 35 left has been reopened. Captain Stefanini gets on the plane's PA at 6.18 p.m. and announces to the cabin, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I have good news for you. The runway at Congonhas has reopened and we will arrive as scheduled shortly before 7 p.m. At 6.20 p.m., A flight attendant requests entry into the cockpit, which is granted. She enters the cockpit and says to the two pilots, Everything in the cabin is okay. Where are we landing? Captain Stefanini responds, I have just informed, alluding to his announcement over the PA. The flight attendant says, I didn't hear. Sorry, she was talking, referring to another flight attendant. 
Captain Stefanini tells the flight attendant that they'll be landing at Congonias, and the flight attendant says, Is it Congonias? Great, thank you. So now an hour into the 90-minute ride, flight 3054 starts descending and it's approached to runway 35 left at Congonias. The weather at the airport is light rain, clouds varying between 800 to 1600 feet, and visibility was between 4 to 5 miles. Winds are blowing at 8 to 12 knots. At 6.43 p.m., Captain Stefanini says to his first officer, Lima, remember, we only have one reverse. And first officer, Lima, acknowledges, yes, only the left. So the two pilots are confirming with each other that the right engine's reverse thrust is deactivated and only the left engine's reverse thrust is operational. For the next minute, the two pilots are going over a checklist when Sao Paulo approach radios over, TAM 3054, reduce speed for the approach, and call the tower on frequency 127.15. Good afternoon. First Officer Lima responds, 12715 over, and Captain Stefanini adds, good afternoon. So approach is passing flight 3054 along to the tower at Congonias. 30 seconds later, First Officer Lima radios over for the first time to the tower. Sao Paulo Tower, this is TAM 3054. The tower responds, TAM 3054, reduce minimum speed for approach. The wind is north 06. I will report when clear, 35 left. Captain Stefanini calls for the landing gear to be put down, and First Officer Lima drops the gear. The captain calls for full flaps to 40, and First Officer Lima calls out the altitude, 6,000 feet. As the plane passes through 6,000 feet, they start passing through some rain, and the windshield wipers are turned on. At 6.46 p.m., the flight crew starts going through their final checklist. First Officer Lima announces over the plane's PA, cabin crew, prepare for landing. A few seconds later, Captain Stefanini sees Congonias ahead and says, runway in sight. And then he tells his first officer to radio to the tower. The captain says, ask him about the rain condition, the runway condition, and if the runway is slippery. First Officer Lima radios to the tower. TAM on final approach, two miles away, can you confirm conditions? The tower responds, it's wet and it is slippery. I will report 35 left clear, 3054. First Officer Lima radios, already on final, to which the tower responds, the aircraft is starting departure. Then Captain Stefanini exclaims in the cockpit, wet and slippery. So flight 3054 is two miles out, and Captain Stefanini is dropping clues that he's worried about the conditions on the runway. He knows he's flying into Congonias, which is notorious for its super short runway. The airport just had an accident the previous day. The airport has had a history of accidents. The main runway he's about to land on was just closed for 20 minutes a short while ago because conditions were deemed unsafe, and pilots were complaining about it being slippery. He's got a headache, which probably isn't helping the situation, And he's aware that his reverse thrust, the thing that helps you slow down, is unavailable on one of his engines. So understandably, he seems a little stressed out about the current situation. He gets a message from the tower that runway conditions are wet and slippery. Tower also says there's a plane on the runway about to take off, so they still aren't even cleared to land yet. 24 seconds after the captain says wet and slippery in the cockpit, the tower radios TAM 3054. 3-5 3-5 left, clear to land, the runway is wet and is slippery, and the wind is 3-3-0 at 8 knots. First Officer Lima acknowledges, 3-0-5-4, roger. Captain Stefanini asks, is the landing clear? 
First officer Lima replies, clear to land. The captain says, land green, manual flight. The sound of the autopilot disconnect tone is heard in the cockpit. So Captain Stefanini has decided to turn off the autopilot and fly the plane manually, landing the plane himself. The ground proximity RL warning is heard, and the flight warning computer says 300. Captain Stefanini asks his first officer, inhibit the glide for me, and first officer Lima says okay. 200 is heard in the cockpit, followed nine seconds later by 20. Retard, retard. Captain Stefanini takes his right hand and pulls back the throttle in the number one engine, the left engine, to idle. Two seconds later, at 6.48 p.m. and 26 seconds, TAM Airlines Flight 3054 touches down on runway 35 left at Congonius Airport at a ground speed of 140 knots, or around 160 miles an hour. Right as the plane touches down, First Officer Lima says, reverse, number one only. And Captain Stefanini pulls the throttle to the number one engine down further, past idle to full reverse thrust. The sound of the engines are suddenly roaring. First Officer Lima says, spoilers, nothing, in a perplexed voice. Panicked, Captain Stefanini utters, I look at this. The A320 isn't slowing down as it speeds along Congonius's short, slick runway 35 left. First Officer Lima shouts, decelerate, decelerate. Captain Stefanini exclaims, it can't, it can't. Oh my God, oh my God. Flight 3054 is blasting down the runway and starts to veer off to the left towards the drop-off. Both pilots are pressing as hard as they can at their brake pedals to slow down the plane, but it just keeps speeding ahead and turning to the left. First Officer Lima shouts, go, 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 turn, 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 no, turn, turn. At 6.48 p.m. and 50 seconds, TAM Airlines Flight 3054 shoots out from Congonius Airport at a speed of 100 knots around 115 miles an hour, streaking over Washington Luis Avenue before slamming into a TAM Airlines building at a nearby gas station. Both were located across the street from the airport. Upon impact, the plane explodes into flames as fuel spills everywhere. In addition to the plane, the building and gas station catch fire as well. Cars that were filling up the gas station are consumed by fire. The right wing of the A320 blocked an exit on the left side of the TAM Airlines building, trapping a number of employees inside. All 187 human beings on board Flight 3054 died in the crash. Twelve people on the ground in the warehouse building and gas station died as well. About 10 to 20 individuals that were inside the TAM building were able to exit safely via the right side of the building where the exit was not blocked. The fire lasted for hours, and the entire plane was destroyed except for the tail of the plane which was sticking out of the building. The scene looked like a disaster movie set. Only 24 seconds elapsed between initial touchdown on runway 35 left and the impact with the TAM Express building. So what happened? Why wouldn't Flight 3054 slow down? The pilots used the one reverse thrust they had and pushed on their brake pedals with all their might, but still the plane whizzed down the runway out of control before slamming into a concrete building. Was the runway too slick to stop? Was there a mechanical issue with the plane? Well, investigators in Brazil sent the flight data recorder to Washington, D.C. for analysis, and what they received back told a sad but interesting story. As Flight 3054 was on approach towards runway 35 left at Congonias, the autothrottle was engaged. 
Right as Flight 3054 is hovering just above the runway at 6.48 p.m. and 23 seconds, three seconds before full touchdown of both the left and right main gear, Captain Stefanini takes his right hand and he pulls back the throttle to the left engine, the number one engine, bringing it back to idle. When Captain Stefanini does this, the auto throttle is disengaged. The Airbus A320 auto throttle is turned off whenever the throttles to one or more engines is brought back to idle. Captain Stefanini and First Officer Lima fail to notice, or in a confused moment think it's irrelevant, that the throttle to the number two engine, the right engine, with the inoperative reverser, is left in the climb position. Three seconds after pulling the number one engine back to idle right at touchdown, as First Officer Lima says reverse number one only, Captain Stefanini brings the throttle back on the number one engine to full reverse thrust. So if you remember from the story, right at touchdown, the engines are roaring. What's happening in this moment is that the auto throttle's been disengaged. The left engine has a bit of increased power because the captain has selected full reverse thrust and is trying to slow down the plane. The right engine is roaring because the throttle to the right engine has been left at the climb power position. So the right engine is trying to push the plane forward, and because of this imbalance, what resulted was an asymmetrical thrust, where the right engine, the engine at climb power, is pushing air backwards, the left engine is pushing air forwards, and subsequently the plane veered off to the left. To make an analogy to driving a car, since we all have experience doing that for the most part, it's almost as if this situation is like a car with cruise control. Let's say you're on a trip, flying down the highway at 80 miles an hour in your car, your cruise control is set. Suddenly you decide you want to stop your car and end your journey. So you turn off the cruise control by stepping on the brake. Now you're in manual control, the fuel going to the engine by how much you step on your gas pedal. Well, this plane had two engines to worry about instead of just the one in your car. The captain pulled back the throttle to the number one engine, turning off the auto throttle or cruise control, and the left engine was set to reverse thrust to try and slow the plane down. What the captain failed to realize is that now, this cruise control was suddenly off, and he had pulled back the throttle or gas pedal to the left engine, but the gas pedal to the right engine was still slammed to the floor, the gas pedal to the right engine being the throttle to the right engine, was still positioned at climb power. Six seconds after touchdown, the foot brakes are applied, but they don't reach maximum deflection or maximum effect until five seconds after first being applied. So it's 11 seconds after touchdown until the foot brakes are pushed with maximum force. According to the flight data recorder, the spoiler lever was set to arm during the landing, but the spoilers didn't automatically deploy. If you've ever looked out the window and saw the wings during a landing, you'll often see that the wing has little metal plates that pop up on the surface of the wing and you can see through the wing to the ground below. These are the spoilers. These aid a plane in decreasing lift and increasing drag, helping a plane slow down during the post-landing roll. When they pop up, they disrupt the flow of air over and under the wing, creating a controlled stall. On flight 3054, again, the spoiler lever was set to armed, but the spoilers never deployed. Why? Well, the Airbus A320 requires that the throttles to both engines be at or near idle for the spoilers to automatically deploy. Since the auto throttle was disengaged and the right engine was set at climb power, nowhere near idle, the spoilers didn't deploy. 
One more interesting aspect is that they were able to pull the data from the previous landing this plane made at Kingonias and saw that the same flight crew had used a different procedure for that landing. On the landing at Kingonias earlier in the day, both throttles were pulled back to idle right before touchdown, and then the throttle to the left engine was brought back to reverse thrust, while the throttle to the right engine was left at idle. The spoilers automatically deployed on that landing. Full reverse thrust was only required for four seconds. You can even look at the flight data for the landing at Porto Alegre as well, the previous flight directly prior to flight 3054. And another procedure was used for that flight where upon landing, both throttles were brought back to idle and then both throttles were brought back to reverse thrust, even though the right engine's reverser was inoperative. For 10 seconds, the throttles were left at reverse thrust, and the spoilers deployed on that landing as well. So you might be asking, why did these guys use so many different procedures when landing? Why not just pick one method and stick with it? Well, what many are guessing that the captain was trying to do was slow down the plane as quickly as possible because he was nervous about not having enough room to land at Kingonias, an airport that he was clearly worried about because of its history and the announcement that the runway was slippery and wet. If upon landing, the captain had pulled both throttles to idle and then both throttles to reverse thrust like he did when landing at Porto Alegre, the plane would have taken an extra 180 feet to come to a complete stop. Why? Because if you pull the throttle back to reverse thrust on an engine where the reverser has been deactivated and those reverser doors aren't going to open up, that engine still gets a little boost of fuel from the reverse thrust positioning of the throttle and actually gives you more forward power than if you just left that throttle at idle. So what the captain was trying to do was bring back only the left engine's throttle back to reverse thrust and leave the right engine at idle. However, maybe due to being under pressure, having a headache, having anxiety, it being dark in the cockpit, he made a mistake. And instead of bringing the right engine throttle back to idle and then leaving it at idle, he never brought the right engine throttle to idle and mistakenly kept the right engine's throttle at the climb position. I'm going to post a link to the flight data charts in the description section of the podcast if this interests you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
In November 2008, the Brazilian Center for the Investigation and Prevention of Aeronautical Accidents released the report on Flight 3054. Their probable cause for the crash was very detailed and thorough, but just to summarize the important points, the report said the training of the pilots by the airline was insufficient. Often the training would consist of computer courses and more teacher-based quality training was unavailable. The growth of TAM Airlines over the previous years led to abbreviated training, and this was considered a contributing cause of the crash. The report listed poor cockpit coordination as a contributing factor of the crash, said the pilots were unaware of the situation in the cockpit, and the loss of situational awareness prevented them from coming up with a timely corrective action. The report mentioned the first officer's lack of experience in the A320. He only had 237 hours flying the plane. This contributed to a loss of awareness in the cockpit. The National Civil Aviation Agency of Brazil had met on April 10, 2006 and mentioned having two operating reverse thrusters as a requirement when landing at Congonhas Airport when the runway was wet. Unfortunately, they didn't formalize it as a regulation. Poor design by Airbus was mentioned in the report. The report said it was troublesome that a plane could land with one engine at climb, another engine at reverse thrust, and no alarm went off to warn the pilots of the plane's configuration. Lastly, the report mentioned that poor management of the airport led to the crash, that planes shouldn't have been allowed to land in wet conditions when drainage grooves had yet to be installed. So before we get to our interview, we have one last question. How did the crash of Flight 3054 make flying safer? Well, first off, at Congonius Airport, now planes are not allowed to land unless both reversers are operational. Next, this crash highlighted the overall danger of Congonius Airport, and many airlines adjusted their schedules to pass international flights, charter flights, connection flights to the larger Sao Paulo Guarulhos International Airport located to the northeast of the city center. Another positive that came after this accident is that Congonius finally received its drainage grooves in the runway. New inspection procedures are also implemented for the airport. Lastly, this was a painful lesson for commercial pilots worldwide. Served as another opportunity to learn and realize the dangers of not maintaining focus during stressful situations in the sky. Basic aspects of flying, like the positioning of the throttles to the engine might get overlooked if pilots get too fixated on any one thing, whether it be a wet runway or something else. It was another crash that highlighted the importance of good CRM. Well, now it's time to bring in our guest for today's show, Juliana Garbo. Today on PCPC, we are joined by a Brazilian journalist and pilot. She was an eyewitness at the scene of the crash of Flight 3054. Let's welcome to the PCPC, Juliana Garbo. How are you holding up in 2020, Juliana? Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tess. I'm holding up just fine. I mean, getting used to the pandemic and what is considered the new normal and hoping to be able to fly back to Brazil to visit my family anytime soon. Yeah. How are you guys? We're hanging in there doing the best we can. So you're a pilot and you come from a family of pilots. When did you first become interested in aviation? Was it just kind of like the family business? Pretty much. I don't think I ever had a choice, to be honest. Yeah. Um, my first flight was when I was two months old, um, flying back to my, you know, the, the city where my dad was based on because he was flying with the major airline in Brazil at the time. So my grandfather worked for the same airline, Varigui, yeah. which was the biggest one, for 40 years. And my dad also worked for them for 
35 years. His oldest brother was also a pilot. My cousins are also pilots, or they either worked as a flight attendant, or they also worked as a mechanic. And I decided to take flying classes when I was really young, when I was 17 to 18. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to choose that as a career, but at that time, the, the industry was not that favorable for me, so I decided to become a journalist instead. But it's a passion. You know, I grew up... Flying all the time. Back in the days, we didn't have to pay for the ticket. So that was a huge privilege. I thought that that was something that happened to everybody, you know, right? Yeah. So normal. Um, but more than that, I also lived really close to the airport my whole life just to make life easier for my dad because of his schedule. And that means that I was going to school in the same neighborhood. And all of my friends, their parents were also part of the industry somehow. Yeah. Um, I would go to the barbershop inside the airport. I was in the backstage of the airport all the time. And because I was flying before 9-11, I also felt very privileged to be able to just be in the cabin with my dad and, you know, being able to watch what he was doing and how passionate pilots are about flying. That's very beautiful. And definitely, it was just natural for me to have this sort of interest. No, that sounds like you have a long history of uh, being involved with the airport and being involved with the local Brazilian aviation industry. That's that's a interesting story. Um, let's talk about uh, TAM Airlines Flight 3054. What was the evening of July 17th, 2007 like for you? Where were you and how did you first learn of the crash? I was coming back from a... a a town really close to Sao Paulo with my then boyfriend. We had just gone to get some tattoos. I was really young. I was, I guess, 19 at the time. And we were coming back through this, one of the main avenues that crosses the city right below the runway. So you have that one avenue where I was driving and you have the main one which cuts the city north and south. And that goes that avenue goes along the whole runway, pretty much. That's the biggest one in Sao Paulo, right? Mm -hmm. So as we are approaching that crossroad between the two avenues, we heard a noise. And it sounded like a, a car crash, but much, much heavier. You know, the noise was really loud. Yeah. Um, as we look over, my boyfriend tells me it looks like it's the tail of an airplane that just crashed the the building right in front of the runway oh, and i was like no that's crazy that's impossible we grew up over there you know nothing like that had ever happened in that way yeah but you know that it can happen mm -hmm. so you're like is this really happening and then i looked over and i definitely saw the tail and it was the most surreal thing the firefighters were not there yet, so it had just happened. We saw the chaos. We were going to this one restaurant in the neighborhood, and suddenly everybody in the restaurant is just going crazy talking about how a plane had crashed the, the building because it overrun the runway. Um, immediately, the first thing that I think is, was there somebody in the airplane that I knew? Yeah. Because that's always a possibility, right? I feel like whenever we have this sort of um, crash, if you're part of that community, everybody takes it very, very personal because it could have been with anyone that we know. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I was thinking when you were uh, talking about it was, 
I imagine everybody has family members or neighbors that work for the airlines. And when a crash happens, you're immediately thinking, I probably know somebody on that plane. Absolutely. And I grew up, you know, seeing from time to time my dad come home crying because some plane crash had happened and the pilot happened to be his friend. You know, and I always, you know, also when you're the child of a pilot, I feel like you also grow up thinking that that is a possibility. Yeah. That one day your father might not be there or your mom or whoever works in the industry, you know. So I feel like you always have that chip on your shoulder. Yeah. One thing from investigating this crash that's kind of caught my eye was that I think that the plane crashes because the captain inadvertently left the throttles pushed up on the right engine. I think that's what Mm -hmm. most people consider to be the uh, cause of the crash. As a pilot, when you're coming in for an approach, is it pretty normal to have the throttles pushed up like that? I mean, do you have to be there occasionally? Um, I I just was kind of surprised because I've always assumed that when you're coming down in the sky, your engine power is a little bit lower. And it seems strange to me that it was there in the first place. Do you have any opinion on that? What I know about that accident is that because the, the reverse was already not operating properly, it should have instead of uh, landing in Congonhas, it should have landed in the major airport in Sao Paulo, which is Guarulhos. Uh-huh. Because the problem with that one airport too is that at that time, the space, the escape space was not good enough for the size of the, the, the runway, Yeah, um, which made it much worse. And that was one of the changes that happened after the crash. There was a lot of uh, things that changed because of it. Yeah. So what I know from it is that in the same day, that same plane with the same reverse failure had landed in the same runway in even worse weather conditions. You know, the rain was much heavier in the morning and nothing had happened. Yeah. So um, I know that he, the pilot had the choice of using a new procedure or an older procedure as far as landing in that one runway. Yeah. And because he was because the airplane was heavier they had put more fuel when they were in Porto Alegre because over there the taxes for the fuel were much lower than in Sao Paulo oh. the air the airplane was still in the limit of of um, the weight to be able to land in Congonhas but it was heavier than it could have been so i'm sure that the pilot in that moment knowing about the failure with the reverse he was able to think what should i do here now because i know i'm heavier I know the problems with the runway because of the rain. I know the area that I have, and I know that I don't have a lot of escape area. So I believe from what I have read that he was thinking primarily in safety, Yeah. Um, but it ended up not working properly. That's very interesting what you just said. I think if the plane was heavier, it probably needed more power in its approach to get to the runway at times. So that's a that's an interesting um I, fact that you shared with me that I was unaware of. So thank you for that. Um, I thought we could also talk about just that airport that you mentioned, Congonias, that it has a history of being dangerous. And I was wondering from your involvement in the community, how does the community feel about the airport? Do they have mixed emotions for it? Do you think the majority of people want to keep it open because they like the commerce? Or do you think most people are worried and want to keep it closed? I do think you're right. And people have... um different feelings about it. You know, one thing that happened to the airport and the surroundings is that the neighborhood surrounding the airport over time became the most valued ones. 
So the houses are worth more, the, the properties are worth more because they're close to the airport. It's very convenient to have the airport in that location because it's almost central to the city. So it's the kind of airport that gets a lot of uh, businessmen and people there, you know, in a hurry to go to meetings and stuff, especially yeah. from Rio. Um, it's more convenient for them to have the airport over there. Yeah. At the same time, everybody who lives in those neighborhoods, they know that something can happen, not just because something has already happened, but because you're constantly reminded of it because of the noise or you can smell the, the fool being burned whenever the, the airplanes are landing or taking off. Yeah. It's very powerful to see those machines so close to the people. Yeah. But at times, like in the case of this plane crash, it's terrifying. So people do have uh, filed some lawsuits back in 2000, 2001, talking about the risks, talking about um, not just the risks as far as the plane crashes, but also the noise, because before the airport was able to operate 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't work that way. They have to shut down for the night because the noise was just too much for, for the people in the neighborhood. But you do kind of get used to it. You get used to the to the smells, you get used to the noise, and you get used to the danger. Yeah, that would all makes sense to me. I think you were also mentioning at one time that uh, building developers in the area weren't really adhering to regulations on height, and that seems like a danger as well. There is always a fight because of that, um, because the neighborhoods are so valued in the surroundings. Of course, a lot of companies want to build really tall buildings, and they try their best to push the limits as far as that goes. Yeah. So I know that there have been a lot of lawsuits regarding that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I know that there have been a lot of complaints from pilots because of that, um, because it gets in the way of, yeah. of flying, of course. So yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's a tough situation because the airport was far away removed from the city at one point when it started mm -hmm. its operations. But the city grew. It's a major city in the whole world, and what can you do? You can't just like throw people away from the neighborhood. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a, it sounds like the neighborhood grew, and that's changed the calculation if this airport is sustainable or not. It sounds inconvenient to you know move traffic to the outskirts of the city, but as a city grows and changes, you have to make changes as well. So. Um, there was another crash at the airport in 1996 that you experienced as well. Is that right? I think it was uh, TAM Flight 402 on Halloween in 1996. Exactly. It was a Fokker 100. Um, and that was, that was a crazy plane crash, too. I remember vividly. I was a child. I was going to my swimming classes with my mom and my brother. My dad was supposed to be landing on there on that airport at the same time as the crash. And we heard it on TV. I'm about to go to my swimming classes. We're there and suddenly it pops up on TV. My mom goes crazy Ugh. because we were certain that it could have been my dad's airplane. We didn't know which company it was. Yeah. He was already with Bodyguard. This one was a Tim. Um, but of course, you know, even though it wasn't with my dad, everybody feels it. And then at this, in the same day, when I go to school in the afternoon, we get the news that the airplane actually crashed over my teacher's house. Man. Luckily, he wasn't there, but 
it basically destroyed his house, his parents' house, which was right next to his, also got completely destroyed. And he's also a journalist, and he ended up creating this whole website just about plane crashes. And he's one of the advocates to try to manage that, you know, to advocate to for people to manage the airport in a better way that is not as risky for people. Yeah, that's interesting that so many accidents have happened. It's almost become a part of the fabric of that community that uh, there's a memorial there that people walk to. And I'm sure you have these stories, but I'm sure hundreds of other people have very similar stories. That's part of what growing up in this community must be like. Absolutely. When I'm in Sao Paulo, I still, you know, walk up to to the memorial all the time. I take my dad's dog over there every time I'm there. You know, it's really hard not to remember and not to be respectful and mindful of what the industry really is. Yeah. Um, How would you say your life experience growing up in this community that's been affected with crashes, having family members that are pilots, has it affected your personal relationship to flying at all? Has it made you a nervous flyer? Are you not nervous at all because you're desensitized to it because you have grown up around it so much? How would you say your relationship is to flying from kind of an anxious nervousness or not nervous at all uh, aspect? You would think that I would be not afraid at all, but over time I did become a very anxious flyer. It's really hard for me to fly in our days without feeling any sort of anxiety Mm -hmm. because I was really spoiled growing up with, you know, flying with my dad and being able to hang out in the cabin. I could see that everything was fine. They were calm. There's no problem. I don't have that kind of control anymore. So I feel like more than being afraid of just flying, I think it's being afraid of not having the control over my own life because Mm -hmm. I have to rely on a pilot and on a machine. Yeah. Everybody in my family, except for me, have been in a plane crash or almost plane plane crash of some sort, and they all survived. My grandfather crashed, he was able to eject, and he was the only one who survived in the 50s. And we still have that parachute because it saved his life. My dad also has some stories like that, you know. I tend to believe whenever I get in an airplane, I normally think to myself, you know, everybody in your family has survived, so your chances of surviving are really big in case something bad happens. But I do have to, you know, what I try to do is to go after the information and the statistics and keep on my mind that it is still the safest transportation. No, uh, I'm definitely an anxious flyer and... From doing this podcast, I think I always repeat those st- statistics to myself of, you know, one in 11 million, and I do things to comfort myself. But I bet you're in a different situation where you probably f- would feel more comfortable flying the plane. I'm in the back, and I feel kind of helpless. We both kind of feel helpless when we're passengers, but I can get where you're coming from. Yeah, feeling helpless doesn't help anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a pilot, if you're, I don't know, a spy. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's all that that lack of control, that, that having to you know give control of your life to somebody else that is making decisions that are going to affect it. Absolutely, I hope the pandemic can teach us in some way, in that sense, that we don't really have the control over everything. That's just how it is. Yeah, we need to accept that on a plane, and probably accept it in other aspects of life. Where are you excited to fly once this pandemic's over? Do you have a, any place that's at the top of your list? 
I have all the places in the world, but the first <laughs> one for sure is going to be Brazil because I really want to go see my family. I was Aww. supposed to have gone already, and the only reason why I didn't go is because of the pandemic. Yeah, I was supposed to go see my family in March, and it was right when everything was happening, and I was right about to do it, and I canceled last minute. So I think that's at the top of all our lists is to go uh, hug our family members. For sure. One thing I have to say, though, to remind people about the safety of, of um, airplanes also, is that I have seen my whole life from different characters how passionate pilots and flight attendants and everybody in the industry is regarding airplanes and how respectful they are to it. That's something that goes without saying for the whole history of aviation. So even if you don't believe companies because you think that they're always going to prioritize profit, you have to at least remind yourself that the, the people involved with it, they're doing all the best and even more that they can to make everybody safe. Yeah, I think that's that's a good message is to trust these professionals that have dedicated their life to doing it, that take pride in their jobs. They're not just robots. They're, you know, doing the best they can. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Juliana. I hope you're staying safe and staying positive in 2020. It was great to meet you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was an honor. Well, that was Juliana Garbo. That was a pleasant conversation. Let's bring in Tess. Tess, uh, what did you think about the conversation we had with Juliana? It was fascinating. She was so great. And I only wish we'd had more time because I wanted to ask her more questions about her family history, her dad and her grandfather. And all those stories just seemed very intriguing to me. Yeah, I liked hearing about the parachuting out of the plane and the fact that they still held on to that parachute because it saved his life. It sounds like they have a little mini museum at home. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think we should definitely have her back if she will have us to tell some of those stories. Um, One thing she said that I thought was interesting was the whole uh, idea that the plane filled up with gasoline in Puerto Alegre because it was cheaper up there, thus making the plane heavier. A heavier plane's harder to stop on a wet runway. It also leads to a lot more fuel for the fire, made the fire worse. So I thought that was some interesting information that I hadn't heard yet. I didn't know that either. And it sounded like it factored into the pilot's decision making a little bit too. Like it might have added just another thing for him to be worried about while he was making approach. Yeah, another log on the fire saying, oh man, this is really going to be hard to get this plane to stop. So uh, I also thought from her discussion, it was interesting exploring the complicated relationship that the local community have with Congonias. On one hand, the airport represents this injection of resources. The airport brings in businessmen and tourists that are going to go out and spend money in the local economy. The airport provides jobs for, you know, pilots, flight attendants, just employees at the airport. And I bet that constant exposure to different people and different cultures affects the atmosphere of the city. That's good as well. On the other side of the coin, you have the airport is dangerous. It's noisy. It leads to air pollution. And it seems like the surrounding area has outgrown the airport. Anyways, I thought it was interesting how people have to deal with this two-sided coin, apparently. If you live around the area and you have a family member or a friend or you personally work for an airline, I thought that was uh, something I'd like to see a documentary about that. Yeah, I was actually really surprised to hear that the neighborhoods around the airport were more valuable. I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought that the noise and traffic might have driven the values down. Yeah, maybe a commercial property too. I mean, if that's where everybody's getting off a plane and you're in the busiest airport in Brazil, 
people are going to come out with money and ready to get some food or some clothes. I imagine, you know, the markets around there must be uh, populated. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I actually had a layover in Sao Paulo and I did just that. We just wandered outside of the airport and did some shopping and got some food and then we wandered on back to the airport. Yeah. Another thing about talking with Juliana that I liked was it was interesting that even pilots get a tad nervous. Apparently, you can't let anxiety dictate your decisions or professions in life. You just got to do what you want to do. Yeah, I think it goes back to control. I feel like if you're flying the plane, you're able to have some control over the situation. And when you're a passenger, you are completely out of control. You're putting your life in someone else's hands. So Tess, what did you think of the story of Flight 3054? Was there anything in the story that jumped out at you that you want to discuss? I thought it was a really interesting story. Um, It sounds like the cause of the crash was human error, Mm -hmm. but there were a lot of other factors that led the pilot to make a fatal mistake. Yeah, Uh, There was weather as he was approaching the airport. He was worried about landing in this weather and had been previously told that he was going to be rerouted to a different airport. Mm -hmm. He knew that the runway was shorter and uh, more slippery than runways that he was used to. So that probably added to his anxiety. He knew the plane was heavier than usual, as Juliana pointed out. So there were a lot of things running through his mind that led him to make the decision that he made, which was what ultimately caused the crash. So knowing all these things, having all these things in the back of his mind is probably what led him to make the decision to default to this old procedure, which he thought was going to allow the plane to stop faster but only created more problems yeah i feel like those are all spot on points i mean it was dark in the cockpit he couldn't see well captain had a headache he was nervous and he made that single air leaving the right engine at climb power and that was the difference i think we should also talk about the design of the plane seemed odd that the flight program computer wasn't built or designed to be smarter i mean upon landing the ground spoilers are armed saying, hey, we want to slow down. Left engine was set to reverse thrust. Wheels are on the ground. Auto brakes selected. Both pilots are pressing as hard as they can on the braking pedals. It seems like everything in the world is telling the computer, these guys want to slow the plane down. But for some reason, having the you know, throttle up at climb, it was a manual control and the computer didn't turn it off or at least give them a warning that, hey, you're giving me all these indications that you want to do something other than go full blast ahead. Here's an alarm saying, turn that down, you know? Yeah, I had that same thought too. An alarm would have been helpful for yeah. them to know that the um, one of the throttles was still pushed forward. Definitely. Another important moment I thought was when the first officer says reverse number one only, right when the plane lands. You can kind of understand being nervous and just relying on your coworker if you're not feeling mentally sharp or you have a headache or you're getting tunnel vision because of anxiety. So if you have your coworker say reverse number one only, maybe you just grab the throttles to the number one and you throw it in reverse and you don't think about the number two engine at all. I bet if the first officer had said reverse number one only, the throttles to the number two engine, let's bring it back to idle, he would have done that. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't even um, put that together. Tell me if you think this was an important moment, Michael, because I thought it was. My anxious brain thought that it was, but I'm sure that nobody's going to agree with me on this. So when the pilot asks air traffic control how the conditions are, air traffic control answers by just saying, 
the runway is slippery. Mm-hmm. To me, if I was the pilot, what I would want to hear was slippery, but don't worry, you'll be fine. Or slippery, but you got this, bro. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know it's not the job of air traffic control to give pep talks, but knowing that you're landing on a slippery runway can't be great for your peace of mind. Yeah, maybe he could have said, it is slippery, but planes have been landing for the last hour and everybody's been fine. Yeah, exactly. And maybe his first officer could have picked up on that energy too and been like, oh, my coworker is kind of upset about this right now. Maybe I can offer to take over flying the plane or offer him some reassuring words, be like, I'll help you, I'll be your second set of eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I like that. As we heard in the interview with Juliana, there's a memorial to the victims of Flight 3054 at the site of the crash where the TAM Express building used to stand. The memorial opened on the five-year anniversary of the crash, July 17, 2012. The plaza is called Memorial Square, and there's a tree that survived the crash at the center of the display, and the names of the victims are engraved. There's also a memorial at Porto Alegre Airport where 199 trees were planted to represent the 199 human beings that died due to the crash. Well, I think that's going to do it for Flight 3054. We only have one story in the world of airline news this week that caught my eye. Want to hear it, Tess? I do. Hit me with it. In Russia, investigators are looking into a hard landing that occurred in Turkey on January 10th, 2020. The airline Norwind had an A321 that landed nose first, causing substantial structural damage to the aircraft. Investigators believe that for some reason the airline removed the flight data recorder from their plane and switched it with another Nordwind A321 before the second plane flew off from Turkey to Moscow. Portions of the cockpit voice recorder were also erased. Once investigators were able to track down the black box, they couldn't find any info on the incident from January 10th. They were able to find info on a flight from Turkey back to Moscow, but it was from that different A321 plane. So for some reason, there was a hard landing, a black box was switched with another plane after being partially erased, and eventually someone switched the black boxes back after a few days, but there's no info on the original incident. The CVR did have a recorded discussion between maintenance personnel about pushing an erase button for the CVR in the cockpit. So something seems kind of fishy in this story, eh, Tess? Definitely. It sounds like this hard landing was a little too hard for some. Apparently so. The story kind of sounded to me like some kids that broke their dad's like expensive toy and were <laughs> panicking trying to cover it up. Yeah, definitely. It also seems kind of crazy that there's apparently an erase button on the CVR. So if you ever do anything wrong, you can just hit erase. I wonder why pilots have that. Well, we'll keep an eye out for any more info on this story out of Russia. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of PCPC. Thanks to Tessa Andrade, as always. Anything you want to say to the people? Thank you so much, people. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It's been a pleasure, as always, and I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks to the Patreon crew. Go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod if you want to sign up. Thanks for all the reviews. You guys are awesome, and I love it. Go to planecrashpod.com to check out our merch and befriend us on Twitter. I hope you're all doing the best you can in 2020. It's been a rough year, but I'm happy that we're addressing so many underlying issues in our society that we've ignored for too long. I love Star Trek. Love how everyone's equal no matter their gender, race, planet of origin, sexual orientation. I hope we keep moving along as a civilization inching towards becoming better people, a better society where everyone's treated equally. And I'm proud of all the hard work all of you are doing to get us to that better place. 
Thanks to all of you for listening to PCPC, and I hope to hang out with you all again soon. Love you guys. Bye-bye.